so glad to belong to a church where the Christians love each other and have to separate you at times. Ruth chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabites, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabites, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by his young, this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the line, family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Kyleo. Good morning, everyone. For those of you who I have not met, my name is Andrew. Um, I'm one of the, the leaders here at Soma Tacoma, um, and I am excited to bring uh, a message on Ruth chapter 4 today. Um, to give you guys a little bit of background, um, I was not originally planned uh, to give this message, uh, but rather our, our brother Ben Arnold was. However, yesterday uh, afternoon, he tested positive for COVID. Um, so in an 11th hour substitution, uh, I get to bring uh, this message to you guys. So I'm gonna be doing a little bit of reading. Um, but as, as we were kind of processing through what do we do this Sunday, uh, one of the things that, that we talked about was, you know, do, do we switch things up? Do we, do we kind of skip Ruth 4? You know, people at this point kind of have a, a sense of, of where the story's going. But one of the things that, that we had talked about is, is that there is a ton of value in understanding where this story goes. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about lately, uh, our, our youngest son, Levi, he's at an age where he's, he's started to make up these imaginative stories. He can't yet read, but he likes to pick out books and just kind of explain what he thinks going on in the book. Um, and so he'll just sit by himself and just narrate this story to himself. And at the end of these stories, he's gotten in the habit of saying this line where he says, the end, but not the end. And it's gotten into this habit, and I don't know where he picked it up, um, but I asked him the other day, like, what, what do you mean by the end, but not the end? And he says, well, it's the end of the book, but it's not the end of the story. And I think that's applicable for us here, and, and it's, it's important that we finish out chapter four of Ruth, because I think where Ruth four takes us is the end of the story of Ruth, but it's not the end of the story. This story points to something much bigger, much greater, much more grand for us here today. And so today we're going to take a look at Ruth chapter 4 and we're going to get to see where this story is pointing and where our eyes are being drawn. And so with that, I'm going to dive in. I've got Ben's manuscript. And so we're going to join uh, the great Christian tradition of letters being read unto the church. Um, so with that, I, I'm going to pray. Uh, Father, we thank you that um, an 11th hour substitution does not affect the power of your spirit. Uh, the same spirit that would have been working through our brother Ben, had he been here and healthy, is the same spirit now at work in this room. This is your story. This is a story about your heart to redeem. And there is no amount of sickness, no uh, amount of changing and shifting of plans, no amount of stress or anxiety on our part that could get in the way of your story. And so I thank you today that you are here with us and you desire to show us your heart in and through the book of Ruth that this story, this, this fourth chapter in the story may be the end, but it is not the end. It points to something much bigger, and I pray our eyes would be drawn up to that great story that you are writing. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, so the song um, that Krista led us through uh, just a few moments ago um, in many ways could be described as a perfect summary of the book of Ruth. Uh, To remind you of some of the words that we sang and, and that William Cowper wrote, he says, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind his frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And what makes these words even more significant for us today is, is actually William Cowper's story. Um, his story was very different than Ruth's, but significant all the same. You see, he suffered from a deep depression and suicidal thoughts that stretched throughout his life, even having several attempts, uh, failed attempts at, at suicide and even um, having a stay in an insane asylum. But in a museum honoring his life, this painting that we have up here on the slide hangs It depicts him in the agony of the insanity that he often found himself in. Uh, This picture, he's boiling his watch and checking an egg for time, being in this place of just not being able to see what was up and what was down. And yet Cowper had a good friend, the famous John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. And because of this constant 27-year-long Hesed love-filled kind of relationship and friendship with Newton, William Cowper kept fighting for his faith, and he wrote hymns like the one we sang earlier. Little did Cowper know that the words he wrote in his hymns, which he even frequently doubted himself, would be sung by decades by Christians seeking encouragement themselves. And what Cowper's story shows us is that while Ruth's, and and also what Ruth's story shows us is that while all of our stories are very different, God loves to take the most unlikely people and use them to write a beautiful story of his unfailing love. That's been what we've been looking at this whole time through the book of Ruth, that God loves to take unlikely people and use them to write a beautiful story of his unfailing love. And as we enter the story of Ruth one last time, we see Ruth and Naomi wondering what kind of story God is writing for them. Will it be at all what they expect? Or perhaps, maybe, just maybe, even more than they expect. So to recap the story that we've seen thus far, you have to remember that we started in a metaphorical desert. Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons moved from Bethlehem to the pagan country of Moab to escape a famine in Bethlehem, only to find an even greater tragedy awaiting them. Within the span of 10 years, Elimelech and his two sons died, leaving a grieving wife and two grieving daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. But in the wake of the tragedy we see in chapter 1, a resilient Ruth. Orpah turns back to Moab at Naomi's urging, but Ruth stubbornly persists in hesed love for Naomi 
this never giving up, ever pursuing, self-sacrificing love for her mother-in-law. And together the two of them make the trek back to Bethlehem for the barley harvest, having heard that the Lord had visited his people and brought bread. And in chapter two, we saw that Ruth is not just resilient, but she's risky. Out of her deep love for Naomi, she risks her safety by harvesting in the barley fields as a single, foreign, and vulnerable woman. But as she faithfully labors in the field, it is not by chance, but by God's provision that she finds herself in the field of a faithful Israelite named Boaz. See, Boaz not only provides immediate protection and provision for Ruth in the fields that far exceeds her expectations, but Ruth discovers that Boaz is actually a close relative to Naomi and could potentially act as a redeemer for their family. And then in chapter three, which we looked at last week, we see Naomi and Ruth scheming a plan for a secret evening meeting between Ruth and Boaz to appeal to him to become the redeemer that they need. Now, we somewhat tongue-in-cheek characterized Ruth in chapter three as risque Ruth, headed down to the threshing floor, but we actually discovered that far from being risque, she was actually very righteous. She secretly sneaks into the threshing floor, lies down at the feet of Boaz without any desire to seduce him, and simply asks for more of the kindness that he's already given her. Once again, Ruth discovers that Boaz is a faithful man who loves his God, Yahweh. He doesn't take advantage of her vulnerability. He doesn't give in to any temptation that might be present. And out of a deep care and love for Ruth and Naomi, Boaz pledges to redeem them, if he can. But there's a twist in the story. We see Boaz tell Ruth that there's another Goel, or family redeemer, who's actually a little bit closer and therefore has the first right of refusal at redeeming Ruth and Naomi. And so all the surprises in this story, all the providential movement of Ruth towards Boaz, all the strategizing of Naomi comes down to this moment of suspense. Will the other redeemer want to marry Ruth and redeem the family property? We're left on the edge of our seats. And so we pick up the story with chapter four, which we read just a few moments ago. And then here in chapter four, we finish our summary by saying that we're gonna see this week a redeemed Ruth and even a redeemed Naomi. And what we're gonna see here is that God doesn't just meet, but he exceeds Ruth and Naomi's expectations. Specifically, we see him doing that in two ways. First, he gives them an ideal redeemer that points to an even better one. And second, we see him give them a grace-filled story that points to an even bigger one. So we see a redeemer and a grace-filled story, both of which point to something much bigger and much better. So that first point, an ideal redeemer that points to an even better one. So pretend with me for a moment that we haven't read the rest of the story. Uh, pretend with me for a moment, just kind of block out what Kyleo read and, and enter the story with me, trying to understand and feel the tension 
in the air as Boaz enters the town gate. How is this story going to end? What's going to happen? There's this, this meeting that needs to take place. The tension is palpable. And as we watch Boaz at work, we see the first thing that he does for Naomi and Ruth is that he plans. Perhaps he was up all night strategizing, not getting a wink of sleep. But that morning, he has a plan. Unlike chapter 2, where Ruth just happens to end up in the field of Boaz, sometimes God wants us to strategize and to have a plan that puts ourselves in the right place at the right time. Boaz evidently knows where this Redeemer is going to come along, and he sits down in the town gate just in time to meet him. You can almost imagine Boaz saying, hey, fancy meeting you here. I have a quick question for you. Um... But what he actually says is, come over here, my friend, and sit down. Now, you'll notice that the other Redeemer's name is never mentioned. In fact, the Hebrew word translated, my friend, could also be translated, Mr. So-and-so. Several commentators suggest his name is missing because he's somewhat of an anti-hero of the story. But either way, whether it's to protect his identity or as a means of judgment, his name is left out of the story And here he is just called Mr. So-and-so. And so so Boaz tells Mr. So-and-so, sit down, and he does. And then he finds 10 of the city elders, and he says, sit here, and they do. And it's a little humorous. It's almost like a little window or a picture of the creation narrative. God says, let there be light, and there is. And Boaz says, come over here and sit down, and they do. He has that type of influence and respect. He has a lot of authority in town. He has a lot of respect in town. And he's using that influence on behalf of those who don't have it. As he sits Mr. So-and-so down, we see his plan unfold. He starts by only telling him part of the story. Hey, you know Naomi. She's, She's come back to Bethlehem. And she's selling the land that belongs to Elimelech. And by selling the land, what we mean here, and it's important to review, that Boaz is probably referring to the fact that Elimelech sold his land before going to Moab. And then his wife Naomi retained, that, that his wife Naomi retained this right to repurchase the land, but because of her poverty, she has no ability to buy it back. And so what Boaz is inviting Mr. So-and-so to do is to buy the land and support Naomi with the proceeds from the land. And we're reading a little bit between the lines here, but probably what Mr. So-and-so is thinking is, well, Naomi is older. It's unlikely that she's going to have any more kids. And so, if I buy this land, I can support Naomi with the proceeds from the land, and when she dies, I will have an extra piece of land and the proceeds that come from that land. It it makes sense. It's It's a deal that makes sense. And so he tells Boaz, I'm in. I'll I'll redeem. And then Boaz, in a stroke of genius, says, well, there's a footnote. There's some fine print on this deal that you haven't yet read. It's important that you read it. He said, if you're going to be a redeemer for Naomi and her family, you can't do it halfway. 
Redemption doesn't work if we only go halfway. He says that you have to go all the way. See, Elimelech's dead son has a widow named Ruth. And if you're going to be a faithful redeemer, you need to marry her too to maintain Elimelech's name and inheritance. Now, if you haven't been here the past few Sundays, we've explained this, and to be honest, it sounds really weird. But there was a God-given law in ancient Israel called leveret marriage, which provided for widows who had no sons. Essentially, the law said that when a man died and he had no living sons, it was the job of one of his brothers or other close relatives, presumably unmarried, to come and marry the widow so that the inheritance would not be lost and the name of that family would not be forgotten. And so upon reading the fine print, Mr. So-and-so starts to back out of his commitment because he realizes what it's going to cost him. It's a very costly deal to redeem Naomi. Not only will he have to use his own money to purchase back the land and then provide from the land for Naomi and Ruth, but now with a Leverite marriage on the table, the land would not become his inheritance, but would eventually pass to Ruth's son. So Mr. So-and-so says, I'm not willing to do that. With that, that fine print in the mix, I, I can't, I won't. It's going to cost me too much. So much so that I might not even be able to support my own land if I make this decision. I can't do it. Boaz, go for it. This seems to be Boaz's plan all along to test Mr. So-and-so to determine if this man was driven by the desire for financial gain or driven by his desire to care for the vulnerable and the foreigner. And I really think here that, that this was Boaz's heart, that if, if Mr. So-and-so was driven by this genuine sacrificial care for Ruth and Naomi, that Boaz would have stepped back. He would have let Mr. So-and-so step in and redeem but this plan, the, the way that Boaz structures this plan, it actually reveals the intentions and the desires of Mr. So-and-so's heart. And so to seal the deal, Mr. So-and-so takes off his sandal and gives it to Boaz. And there's this little parenthesis in verse 7 that says, this was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. As best as we know, and this is a Ben joke, it was like the equivalent of a signed affidavit or a sandal affidavit. You can text him about that joke if you think it's funny or not. <laughs> so Boaz takes Mr. So-and-so's sandal and he puts it in his filing cabinet. And if anyone ever asks, hey, why did you redeem Naomi and Ruth and, and not this other guy? Wasn't, wasn't he a little bit closer? Boaz could go to the filing cabinet, take out the filthy old sandal and say, Here's the sandal Mr. So-and-so gave me. He gave it to me in the city gate. You can see his footprint right there. You can test it for DNA if you want. This is, this is as good as, as any legal document. Throughout this entire process, you see uh, Boaz is a good redeemer. He has a plan that's grounded in grace and grounded in being faithful to the laws of the land as it has always been with Boaz throughout the story, we see him being both compassionate and completely above board. But Boaz isn't just a strategic planner. 
Second, we see at this city gate that he advocates. He advocates for Naomi and Ruth. In this moment, Boaz uses all of his authority, all of his influence, all of his status in society for one singular purpose, to advocate for the vulnerable. Naomi and Ruth aren't present, and even if they were, they wouldn't have a voice in this context. And so Boaz becomes their voice. He advocates for them. And it's important here to remember that Ruth is a Moabite, a minority. And don't forget for a second that racism is not new. The tendency for Israelites to ostracize and villainize Ruth as an outsider would have been strong. Perhaps Mr. So-and-so's refusal to be the Redeemer was in part because of Ruth's ethnicity. But Boaz refuses all the stereotypes. He refuses to look at Ruth as less than because of her ethnicity. He ignores the voices of the past that say Gentiles should not be trusted. But instead, he looks at Ruth as made in the image of God, worthy of respect and worthy of honor. And in this Old Testament story, there's this beautiful New Testament moment where Boaz reflects the heart of Jesus by modeling an alternative community, a community of people of different ethnicities where we don't just tolerate each other, but we welcome, value, and even treasure one another. Derwin Gray in his book, How to Heal Our Racial Divide, says this, Jesus was sent on a mission to reconcile people to God the Father and to one another. We treasure Jesus by treasuring one another. Notice I say treasuring, not just being kind. Ethnic supremacy is thinking of yourself better than one another based on ethnicity. It looks like ignoring, dismissing, and not advocating for others when they are being treated unfairly, among other things. It is injustice to not leverage your life to rectify the injustice perpetrated against your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me read that again. It is injustice to not leverage your life to rectify the injustice perpetrated against your brothers and sisters in Christ. On the other side of the cross, we are called, even more than Boaz is, to this kind of advocacy. One of the most fundamental parts or starting points for racial reconciliation in any age is treasuring one another and then leveraging our life to rectify injustice. For us to ask, what has God given me? What voice, what position, what favor, what standing, what provision? has God blessed me with that I may either employ or lay down to serve those who might not have the same. Sometimes, I would say often, this kind of advocacy requires great sacrifice. And that's what we see with Boaz. He plans, he advocates, and then he sacrifices. The cost Mr. So-and-so was unwilling to pay, the threat to his own inheritance he was unwilling to absorb, Boaz looks at it and says, I'll gladly take the risk. I will gladly make an investment 
that makes absolutely no economical sense because I understand that this makes all the sense in the world in God's economy. This is a a bad financial deal for Boaz. But in God's economy, it makes all the sense in the world. And in a moment, we're going to see how Jesus is a better redeemer because that's who gives us the hope that we could ever be like Boaz. But Boaz's faithfulness should also challenge us, not just point us to Christ, but challenge us personally. Before Jesus ever said it, Boaz lived it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Boaz was undoubtedly a man who made wise financial decisions. He was a man of means, which in many ways put him in a place to redeem Ruth and Naomi. But what becomes obvious in the story is that Boaz's priority was not his wealth or his retirement plan, his future security financially, his 401k or whatever the ancient equivalent would be. What was more important to Boaz than the bottom line financially was the opportunity to put God's grace on display by following God's laws and showing compassion to Ruth and Naomi. And as worshipers of the same God that Boaz worshiped, we are, are, we're making the same decisions, big and small. Is this part of our accounting? Is it part of our planning to ask, will this put the grace of God on display? Will this advance the kingdom of Jesus? And am I willing to sacrifice my plans and my money, and even my reputation for the sake of the kingdom. And the only way, Boaz, and the only way we can make these kinds of sacrifices is to see that God himself is our refuge. And out of a deep sense of his love and presence with us, we're then freed to love others. So we see Boaz, he plans, he advocates, he sacrifices, and finally, he marries. Boaz wastes no time. There's no months and months of wedding planning. He already has the elders there as witnesses. A crowd has now gathered, and so as soon as he collects Mr. So-and-so's sandal, he says, let's do it. Let's do this thing. And he tells them, you are my witnesses here today. I'm buying the land and I'm marrying Ruth. And they respond immediately with, yes, we are witnesses. And then they give Boaz and Ruth this blessing over their marriage. They say, may the Lord make her like Rachel and Leah, who were two wives of Jacob. And their children were the descendants that that, that became the 12 tribes of Israel. And then they say, may the Lord give you descendants like those of our ancestor Perez, See, a majority of those who lived in Bethlehem descended from Perez. And so the crowd would have understood the blessing as essentially saying this. May you have a lot of babies and a lot of grandbabies and a lot of great-grandbabies. They were blessing this marriage. And again, this marriage highlights Boaz's God-centered heart. There's undoubtedly romantic feelings for Ruth, and we've seen hints of that throughout the story but he unquestionably deeply admires her, but this is not a marriage based primarily on romantic love. 
He's not marrying Ruth because he's found the one, but rather he is marrying Ruth because he is primarily focused about putting on display God's grace and covenant love for his people. This marriage is about sacrificing whatever it takes to show the redemptive love of God for, for the good of the other. That seems to be Boaz's deepest passion. How can I show how amazing God is out of a deep sense of his own redemption, a deep conviction that he has been pulled under the wings of Yahweh's hesed love? Boaz is on a mission to show that love to Ruth and to Naomi. The best marriages are those that po- where both spouses continually ask this same question. How can this marriage be a platform to display God's covenant grace and love? How can what we do in our marriage not draw attention to ourselves but make people ask, who is their God? When we see people witness how we interact with our spouses, are their eyes drawn heavenwards? Are, are they questioning What in the world kind of marriage do you have? Who is this God that you serve? Now, Ben has used this image before when we were talking about marriage from the Gospel of Mark, but our marriages are meant to be like pictures of the Grand Canyon. Even the best picture of the Grand Canyon, the most realistic illustration or rendering of the Grand Canyon is meant not to satisfy people's desire to see the Grand Canyon, but to spur them on. They see this picture and they want to go see the real thing. And so too, our marriages are meant to be this picture that draws people in, that says, if that marriage is a picture of God's love for his people, I can't wait to see the real thing. I can't wait to experience the real thing with God. So everything that Boaz is doing as a redeemer, his planning, his advocacy, his sacrifice, his marriage is pointing to something or someone even better. In the book of Ruth, Boaz is called a goel or family redeemer four times. But over 40 times in the Old Testament, God describes himself is the goel or redeemer of his people. And as amazingly faithful as Boaz was, he was a mere reflection of God himself, the real redeemer of his people. In Isaiah 54, 5, the prophet says, the maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Everything that Boaz was, all of the good attributes we could, we could lay on Boaz, all of the good descriptors, all of the, the righteous choices that he made, God in the person of Jesus is 10,000 times. Jesus, along with the Father and the Spirit, makes an eternal plan to redeem his people with great authority and divine strategy, and Jesus execute, executes the plan perfectly. He becomes an advocate of every outcast. He takes on flesh and dwells among us so that he can truly advocate 
on our behalf. He knows what we go through, and so he can advocate for us. And he doesn't just advocate for us as strangers and foreigners to God's kingdom. He advocates for us as sinners and as rebels. He becomes the voice that appeals to the Father on our behalf. And his appeal is to point to his great sacrifice on the cross. The price of acquiring his bride was not just the price of a plot of land like it was for Boaz, but the price was his own blood. And when no other redeemer would or could be our rescuer, Jesus gladly took all of our sin and all of our condemnation and paid it in full. Last week we talked about how he is an eager redeemer. He is eager to redeem us. And like Boaz did, Jesus stands up before the crowds, before the nations, and he says, it is finished. And he claims his bride, and he marries her, and he commits himself to us in covenant love forever. So we see in Boaz that he plans, he advocates, he sacrifices, and he marries, but even more, we see Jesus does each and every one of those things for us 10,000 times more grand, more beautiful. What makes this story so amazing for Ruth is not that she found an earthly redeemer, but that Boaz, that through Boaz, she was connected to a better redeemer, to Yahweh himself. And what makes this story so amazing for us is not this promise that every Ruth will find a Boaz, but that every single one of us can find a better redeemer in Jesus. And as we look at the epilogue in the final verses of chapter four, after Boaz has married Ruth, we discover that God again exceeds the expectations of his people. He gives Ruth and Naomi an ideal redeemer that points to a better one, but he also gives them a grace-filled story that points to an even bigger one. Even though Boaz has married Ruth, they are still depending on God to write their story. Boaz has done all that he could, but they are hoping for a son who would carry on the family name and inheritance, and God is the only one who could do that. As strong as Boaz is, there's nothing he can do here. And once again, we see faithfulness and providence meet as Ruth gets pregnant and gives birth to a son. And as Naomi holds her grandson Obed in her arms, she is surrounded by a chorus of Israeli women who sing, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. And then they praise Ruth with an incredible declaration, for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better than seven sons. We talked last week about Boaz giving Ruth these six measures of barley, six being a number of incompleteness. The work was not yet done. And here we see the number of seven, fullness, completion. These women are declaring that Ruth's hesed love for Naomi has been the vehicle through which God has brought fullness and completeness back into Naomi's life. 
and reversed her plight. See, Naomi starts in darkness, in famine, and she ends in light. She is devastated by a lack of food in the land, and here she sees lasting provision. She has had to bury her husband and her sons, but now she is celebrating the marriage of her daughter-in-law and the birth of her grandson. She almost lost her inheritance completely, but now she has an heir. Her name was almost forgotten, but now these women are gathering to pray that her name and her grandson's name will be remembered forever. In chapter 1, we saw Naomi come back bitter, and here we see women worshiping God around her. We see a great reversal. And if all those reversals were not enough, we discover, as we mentioned at the beginning, that Naomi and Ruth have the honor of being in the lineage of King David, the king of Israel who wrote most of the Psalms, a king who had a deep sense of his own brokenness matched only by a deeper sense of God's love for him. And I think it would be right for us to wonder and question if David's great-grandmother Ruth didn't have a trickle-down influence on David's life as she shared her experience of God's covenant love with her children and her grandchildren. And maybe, just maybe, we could even see a little bit of Ruth's voice come through in the Psalms, written by her great-grandson, as David so often speaks of God's Hesed love for his people. Maybe that's Ruth's voice, saying this is who God is. And as Ruth and Naomi look back on their story, they see, even though so many times they didn't see it, that this is a grace-filled story. That God had not forsaken them, that he had not left them, that his hesed love had not faded, even when it was hidden behind mysterious clouds of suffering, loss, and disappointment. And while each of our stories of grace is going to be different than Ruth's story, the same God who wrote her story is writing our story. And even this little story points to a bigger story. Big story that each and every one of us, followers of Jesus, have been swept into. Now, we can probably pick a dozen similarities between Ruth's story and God's big story, but let's conclude with three, because, of course, three. First, God's story is a story of unlikely heroes. And here, we very intentionally use the lowercase h, because in God's story, there is only one true capital H hero, and that's Jesus. We'll get to him in a minute. But God's story is full of unlikely people that he rescues and then uses to display his grace to others. It's easy to talk about Boaz as a picture of Jesus, but Ruth is just as much a picture of Jesus as Boaz is. See, God rescues this Moabitess from a land of pagan worship where she immediately becomes a living example of God's hesed love for his people. 
With Ruth, we see no history of worshiping the true God, no history of being rescued from Egypt, no history of hearing the scriptures. And yet Ruth becomes in Bethlehem a profound symbol of the sacrificial love of God for his people. It is this God-given hesed love operating in Ruth that makes all the difference in Naomi's life. There's a little hint to God's bigger story because God loves to build his family with outcasts. He loves to take those with checkered pasts, those who seemingly have nothing to offer, those who feel insufficient, those who feel too ordinary, those whom society despises. He loves to take those kinds of people and invite them in to his family. And not just invite them in, but honor them and use them in ways they never thought possible. As 2 Corinthians 4 reminds us, God loves to take people who know and feel that they are jars of clay so that the treasure of Christ may be seen more, more clearly. Praise God. Praise God indeed. So if you're here today and you're thinking because of fill in the blank, I'm not sure God could actually use me, or at least not in any great way. I want to invite you to reframe that and rephrase that. To say, because I am deeply loved by God, my fill-in-the-blank is not an obstacle, but actually an opportunity for God to display His grace. Our fill-in-the-blank is not an obstacle, but rather an opportunity in our Father's hands. Brothers and sisters, never underestimate the power of living ordinary lives of faithful said love while finding your refuge under the wings of God. There is such value in that. Like Ruth and Boaz, God displays his grace through us as we simply observe him at work, embrace the moments in front of us, and do all that we can to faithfully display God's grace in those moments. Our hope is that God will use these little moments to reverse sadness and brokenness and sin in the world, while remembering that our ultimate hope is that God's story will end with a great reversal. And that's the second similarity we'll look at, is that God's story is a story of a great reversal. See, Ruth ends with this great reversal of Naomi's plight. Yet we know from the rest of the Bible and from our stories that this kind of reversal often doesn't occur in our lifetimes. But what this big story tells us is that for every one of God's people, a great reversal is coming. A time when, in the words of the great philosopher Samwise Gamgee, every sad thing will come untrue. Or, as C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Great Divorce, some say of temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards to turn even that agony into glory. See, what C.S. Lewis here is saying is, is essentially what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, where he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory 
that far outweighs them all, not even worth comparing. As mysterious as it seems, our troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And what Naomi and Ruth experience in very small form, God turning their agony into glory, every one of us who trust in Jesus will experience someday when we are welcomed into the presence of Jesus. Much of the mystery of our lives will be made clear. All of the pain and suffering will be redeemed. The significance of every plot twist in our story will be made plain. All of our disappointment, sorrow, loss, and despair will somehow become a greater reason for joy in the presence of Jesus. And Paul continues on and he says, because of this we do not lose heart. Because this is our certain future, we can both lament and endure suffering and loss. We can give of ourselves sacrificially to others. We can spend our time and our resources to invest in the kingdom because we know that there is a future return on investment that fars outweighs any cost in this life. And even if we struggle to say it now, we will be able to say it then, that we have a God who doesn't just meet, but He exceeds our expectations. This is the kind of story that God is writing for us, family. And we know that our future is secure. Because lastly, God's story is a story anchored in the king. Now, the story of Ruth ends with a genealogy. And I know that we all love genealogies. You can feel it in the room, the buzz even just mentioning the word genealogy. I know we often get excited when we, our Bible reading lands us in Genesis or Numbers or First Chronicles. And someday we will do a little bit more teaching on genealogies because they are quite amazing. And they teach us a lot about God's character. But besides that, one, one way that God shows us uh, he uses this to show us not only that this is a real story with real people, but if you look at genealogies in the Bible, they always come at a point of crisis in the story. After the flood, there's a genealogy. After Israel's exodus from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, a genealogy. After Israel and Judah's exile in Assyria, in Assyria and Babylon, genealogy after each of these crisis events, a genealogy. Why? Because God made a promise to Eve. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to David that He would send a Redeemer through their descendants. These genealogies at crisis points in the history of, of God's people is a reminder that He is keeping track that he has not forgotten his promises. His promises will not fail. He says, there's this crisis point. You may start to wonder, is this, is this Redeemer coming? Well, let me remind you, I have been keeping track through every single generation, even when you lose sight, O oh people. I do not. And so when you get to the end of the Old Testament, 
400 years of silence. You might ask yourself, as many people did, has God forgotten? And yet, as the New Testament starts, what does it start with? It starts with the genealogy. A genealogy that includes Abraham, it includes Ruth, it includes David, and ultimately ends with Jesus. And this genealogy is saying loud and clear that God did not forget his promise to send a redeemer. And the whole story has been anchored all along in Jesus. The genealogies in Matthew and Luke are the last genealogies in the Bible because they're fulfilled. The purpose of the genealogy is complete. Jesus has come. And in Jesus, it's not whether or not you've been born a Jew that matters. It's whether or not you've been born again that matters. It's not whether or not your name is remembered in the long line of genealogies that matters. It's whether or not your name is written in the book of life that matters. And it is not whether or not you have an inheritance in the land of Israel that matters, but whether or not you have an inheritance in Jesus that can never perish, that will not spoil, will not rust, will not tarnish, that's what matters. And while it was a great honor for Naomi and Ruth to be in the genealogy of David and ultimately in the genealogy of Jesus, it is an even greater honor that we are called his sons and his daughters, that we find our identity not in a genealogy, but in Jesus. And because Jesus is the anchor point in God's story, because he is the ultimate hero, we know that God will meet and even exceed our expectations for redemption. And so we'll end with a series of promises recorded in Romans 8. Paul says, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Family, that is the story that we're swept up in. That is the Redeemer that we've been given. So now as as we close Ruth chapter 4 knowing that this is the end but it's not the end the story's much bigger we're going to respond in two ways. First we're going to sing we're going to praise this God who writes a much better story and gives us a much better Redeemer. And we're going to take communion. And as we take communion, 
I want you guys to think about two questions. You guys can think about these two questions for the rest of the week if you want to. The first question is, where has God exceeded my expectations? Contemplate. As you, as you re- recount the story of grace that God has written in your life, what has Jesus done for you that has exceeded your expectations? And ask him, how, how can I respond in thankfulness? And the second question, where am I struggling to stay in the story that God is writing for me? I mean, take some time to be honest with God about your confusion, your doubts, your frustration, and pain. Ruth and Naomi were, were in this place. We see Ruth coming back in, in, into Bethlehem at chapter 1 saying, I went away full and God has brought me back empty. There was serious confusion there. What is God doing? How can this be a story of grace? But we have a promise that the story does not end with confusion. It does not end with frustration. It does not end in sadness and tears. It ends in glory. And so let us ask, where, where are we struggling to stay in the story? And let us rest upon God who gives us strength, who reminds us that the story is much bigger than what we see and that the Redeemer is good. So as Krista plays this last song, as you guys contemplate those questions, We'll also invite you to come and take communion and to remember um, what Jesus paid. It wasn't just the cost of a plot of land. It was his blood. It was his body broken for us. As Paul says, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Think of Boaz in the town gate. Yes, I'll do it. I'm eager. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Mr. So-and-so said, I'm not willing to pay that price. Boaz said he was Jesus 10,000 times so. We have an eager Redeemer who desires to meet each and every one of you today. I'm going to pray for us. I think Krista can sing. Jesus, we thank you that um, This is a big story, and it's a good redeemer that I do not deserve. And yet, you so freely give. I have nothing to offer, and yet I'm welcome.
I don't have a context for that. I don't have a category for that. And yet, you invite me in. I pray as we, as we respond, as we sing, as we contemplate these questions, Father, that you would draw our eyes up to you. You are good. Thank you for meeting us here today. Cheer your name we pray. Before we sing this last song, I just want to.